Chapter 18, Part 2 Defeated by Democracy Winter 2005-2006 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Problems in Basra McDonald's difficulties in dealing with MNDSE leaders illustrated that after the havoc of the brutal Sadrist uprisings of April and summer of 2004, the British effort in MNDSE had become disconnected from the coalition command in Baghdad, effectively reaching a point where the British were pursuing different objectives than the MNFI campaign plan. The problem originated in London. The British public, and even some within the British government, questioned the legality of continuing the conflict beyond the invasion, and expressed a great aversion to British casualties. Increasingly, British officials began to view the war as a political risk that needed to be minimized by limiting the British military's exposure. At the Ministry of Defense, the Permanent Joint Headquarters, or PJHQ, and MNDSE headquarters, these pressures translated into policies of casualty avoidance and a view of the conflict as an internal Iraqi dispute in which British military forces and funds were of little relevance. Additional pressures on the British mission in Iraq came because of the UK Ministry of Defense's 2004 restructuring plans, which called for steep cuts in the British Army. Four infantry battalions were eliminated, 10% of the British infantry force, as well as seven tank squadrons and six artillery batteries. Managing these sizable reductions while simultaneously deploying troops to Iraq and Afghanistan created considerable pressure to decrease the British presence in Iraq. For the British government, Operation Telic, the name of Britain's national operation in Iraq, by 2005 had become an economy of force effort in which the level of military resources was dictated by domestic policy, rather than by the situation in theater. Organizational factors worsened the divergence in the Allies' objectives. Although the deputy MNFI commander in Baghdad was a British three-star general, PJHQ had designated the two-star MNDSE commander in Basra as the United Kingdom's national contingent commander to give the British government greater awareness of the area where nearly all British troops were based, rather than having information filtered through a higher headquarters. As a result, British commanders in Basra came to see PJHQ rather than MNCI as their next higher headquarters, and British leaders in London often bypassed the MNFI headquarters. One MNDSE commander later commented British defense leaders, quote, jumped through the theater-slash-operational level and concentrated directly on what was going on in the multinational division in Basra. Baghdad was a distraction, end quote. As the British government and public became more casualty-averse, the result of this reporting chain was a heavy emphasis on force protection from London. The British rotational policy did not help the divergence in national objectives. In a period of 18 months in 2004 and 2005, five British brigade commanders rotated through Basra. The high turnover among the senior British commanders in MNDSE made it difficult for MNFI and MNCI leaders to detect the changes occurring in British policy because they were camouflaged by the frequent change of personalities in British leadership. In addition, with each new commander came new priorities that disrupted continuity in planning and operations. 
The short command tours also hindered MNDSE leaders from establishing strong working relationships with their coalition counterparts, as well as with Iraqi military and civilian leaders. One British Ministry of Defense study later concluded that, quote, the short-term horizon and rapid turnover of UK in-theater commanders made it more likely that the significance of key events would be missed, end quote. As UK leaders in London began to signal to MNDSE in 2005 the importance of gradually disengaging from security operations in southern Iraq, the British efforts to improve governance and security at MNDSE collided with the intra-Shia political conflict emerging in the far south. With the formation of new provincial governments after the January 2005 elections, Shia militias associated with local governments, especially the Sadrists, stepped up attacks against British troops and against each other. When the Staffordshire Regiment began to round up suspected JAM militia members led by Ahmed al-Gharawi in Amara in mid-May 2005, the Sadrist provincial governor, Adel Mohodr al-Maliki, threatened to cut all ties between the British and Mizan's provincial council if the operation was not halted. A few days later, on May 29th, a British patrol near Amara was hit by an EFP, killing one soldier. EFPs had been used in the south as early as August 2004, but when the remnants of this one were sent to Baghdad, U.S. analysts determined it was of the same design used by Lebanese Hezbollah and likely of Iranian origin. A short time later, another EFP in Amara killed three soldiers in a Land Rover patrol, after which British commanders decided that all British patrols would be conducted in warrior infantry fighting vehicles. Intra-Shia violence, meanwhile, worsened in the summer of 2005 as the various parties jostled for position ahead of the December 2005 elections. On August 24th, tensions exploded when the Sadrists tried to reopen an office in Najaf a year after it had been closed during the August 2004 uprising. They were prevented from finishing their task by members of the Badr Corps, leading to fighting between the two groups that lasted for two days. Once again showing their ability to mobilize their forces across the country on short notice, the Sadrists responded with attacks against the Badr Corps in Basra, Hilla, Diwaniya, Amara, and Baghdad. When the fighting finally stopped, 100 had been killed, and the Sadrist office in Najaf had been burned to the ground. The Jamiat Police Station Crisis the late August clashes showed that the Sadrists had regained their footing a year after their defeat in Najaf, and their resurgence quickly became a threat to the British strategy of transitioning security responsibility to local Iraqi forces. By spring 2005, Basra's police force was increasingly falling under the control of the JAM militia. In April, British forces discovered evidence of torture at Basra's Jamiat police station while investigating the death of a detainee that had been turned over to the Iraqi police's infamous Serious Crimes Unit, commanded by a Sadr loyalist named Captain Jafar. Basra police chief General Hassan al-Sad admitted publicly to the press in May that he could not control three-quarters of his force due to its infiltration by militias, particularly the JAM and Badr Corps. Officers loyal to the militias, Saad said, used their positions as cover to carry out executions against rivals and mostly Sunni former regime loyalists. As was happening in Baghdad, local Basra civilians began observing police checkpoints jointly manned by Iraqi police and JAM militiamen. At the same time, British officials in Basra began receiving reports of Jafar's close ties to Basra JAM leader Ahmed al-Fartusi and his militia. 
Despite this growing body of evidence, British commanders were cautious about confronting the militia's expanding influence within the Iraqi police and throughout the city. Clashing with the militias could have several consequences. It could undermine key relationships with members of Basra's security and governance teams, increase British casualties, and set back British efforts to draw down troops. Seeking to resolve the problem by political means, the senior British police advisor in Baghdad presented Interior Minister Bayan Jabber with a list of police officers in Basra that MNDSE recommended for dismissal, but Jabber ignored the recommendation. Rebuffed, MNDSE developed a list of 200 individuals, 180 of them police officers, for arrest in an attempt to bring the militia to heel. Included on the list was Fartusi, though British leaders found they could not arrest him because of his presence on Prime Minister Jaffrey's no-strike list. But when three British soldiers were killed within the same week by EFPs linked to Fartusi, Brigadier John Lorimer, commander of the 12th Mechanized Brigade, decided to arrest the JAM leader with or without Iraqi government approval. On September 17th, a special air service or SAS detachment supported by the Coldstream Guards and 1st Battalion, the Royal Anglican Regiment, seized Fartusi at his Basra home in a nighttime raid. Two days later, in likely retribution for the capture of Fartusi, plainclothes Iraqi police ambushed two SAS operators as they were trailing Jafar, who had become a suspect in the April detainee murder. In the ensuing gunfight, the SAS men killed one of their police attackers and wounded another, but were eventually captured by another Iraqi police element while trying to return to their unit. The SAS operators, who had been dressed as Iraqi civilians, identified themselves as British personnel, but were taken to the Jamiat station and badly beaten. MNDSE responded by dispatching reinforcements from the Coldstream Guards and the Royal Regiment of Wales to seal off the city and surround the Jamiat station while flying a negotiating team in to secure the release of the SAS men. Lorimer met with Basra's governor at the same time British Ambassador William Patey met with Jobber. Both demanded the British soldiers' immediate release, but neither the governor nor the minister could or would secure the men's freedom. Back inside the station, Iraqi police officers, including Serious Crimes Unit head Jafar, accused the SAS soldiers of being Israeli spies. The British negotiating team, meanwhile, found itself trapped inside the station. Outside, the Coldstream guards fended off an unruly crowd and other police while taking fire from militiamen that destroyed two warrior infantry fighting vehicles and damaged seven others. In the confusion, Iraqi police moved the two SAS detainees to a JAM stronghold on the western outskirts of the city, but British surveillance tracked the movement, laying the groundwork for a rescue mission. That evening, an SAS squadron, flown from Baghdad with support from 2nd Battalion, the Royal Welsh, smashed into the Jamiat station and rescued the negotiating team before moving on to the JAM stronghold and rescuing the two SAS soldiers. The incident was highly embarrassing for the British, who had long contended that Basra was stable, that ISF training was progressing on target, and that ordinary crime, rather than nefarious militia activities, was responsible for most security problems. As recently as July, the MNDSE commander reported to Casey that Basra had, quote, insurgents but no insurgency, end quote, and that the province would be able to revert to provincial Iraqi control by early October.
After the Jamiat incident, however, Chief of the General Staff General Sir Michael D. Jackson visited Basra and wrote to General Richard Dannett, the commander of Land Command, quote, Though there was no sense of defeatism in theater, the possibility of strategic failure was mentioned in earnest on this visit more than on any before. End quote. The raid on the Jamiat station had exposed the truth that militia influence in MNDSE was destabilizing security and undermining coalition efforts to strengthen Iraqi governance. The week after the fiasco, coalition leaders canceled Basra province's scheduled September 22nd return to provincial Iraqi control, a decision that meant the de facto abandonment of the British plan to withdraw nearly 5,500 soldiers by April 2006. The Jamiat operation also showed that the British forces in Basra had no credible Iraqi force with which they could partner. While training of Iraqi forces had been ongoing since the fall of Saddam, there had been no embedded advisors until early in 2005 when Major General Jonathan Riley, the 6th MNDSE commander, embedded members of an entire UK battle group with Iraqi army units, mirroring the US military transition team program. Unfortunately, the plan came with the Whitehall-imposed caveat that British troops could only embed at the brigade level or above, since officials in London judged that embedding at lower levels would expose British troops to more risk than the United Kingdom was willing to accept. Such restrictions had proved to be onerous and impeded progress at the battalion and company levels, organizations that critically needed mentoring. The progress of the Iraqi police in Basra had been even worse since British police advisors did not embed with their counterparts at all. These choices had significant long-term consequences, as they made it difficult for British commanders to judge the true capabilities of Iraqi units and so limited their ability to shape Iraqi forces positively that British leaders expected to shoulder the responsibility for security as British forces withdrew. Nonetheless, the incident did not cause the British government to abandon its overall strategy. Back in London, an interdepartmental review two weeks after the Jamiat operation recognized that stability was being threatened by the intense rivalries among political parties and their militias. However, it argued that negative media portrayals overstated the depth of the problem, that militia influence within the Iraqi police was minor, and that the governor and provincial council's refusal to work with the British was, quote, awkward, end quote, but, quote, not significant, end quote. Rather than taking a more direct approach to confront the militias with clearing operations, reforming the police, embedding with the ISF, and exerting more influence in MNDSE to establish security, the review recommended that UK forces take action only against militias who directly threatened them. The review also recommended that Iraqi leaders in Baghdad should exert more control in the south, and should replace Basra's police chief. The British government's reluctance to take a more direct approach and increase its own involvement would set the stage for Basra's eventual tailspin. AQI and the Amman-Jordan bombings. Page 504. Elsewhere, the threat from Zarqawi's al-Qaeda in Iraq was broadening. In a bid to expand the war in Iraq into a regional battle, AQI initiated attacks outside of Iraq and publicly declared its true sectarian intentions for the first time, two moves that ran counter to the advice of al-Qaeda's senior leaders. On September 14th, Zarqawi issued a statement announcing that, quote, Al-Qaeda is declaring all-out war on the Rafida, a derogatory term for Shia, 
wherever they are in Iraq. End quote. He exhorted Sunnis to quote, wake up from your slumber because the war to exterminate Sunnis will never end. End quote. It was a significant message from the AQI leader who previously had been publicly coy about his intentions toward the Shia, often claiming the attacks he launched were aimed to force a coalition withdrawal instead of sectarian mayhem. On November 9th, al-Qaeda in Iraq took another step toward expanding the war when it attacked three hotels in Amman with four Iraqi suicide bombers, leaving 67 dead and more than 150 injured. Taking responsibility for the attacks, Zarqawi preposterously claimed that the attack had targeted establishments harboring Western and Israeli spies, calling the hotels, quote, playgrounds for Jewish terrorists, end quote. In reality, however, only one American was killed, and almost all of the casualties were Jordanian, the largest concentration of them coming at a wedding attended by a number of Jordanian notables in the Radisson Hotel. The death toll could have been even worse had one of the attackers, a rare female suicide bomber, not failed to detonate her explosive vest successfully. The woman, an Iraqi from Anbar named Sajida Rishawi, was captured after her suicide bomber husband successfully detonated his own belt. Under questioning, Rishawi revealed that one of her fellow bombers had once been detained by U.S. forces but had been released when U.S. officials no longer deemed him a threat. She also confessed that she had joined the mission because three of her brothers were killed while fighting for AQI against U.S. troops in Anbar. Zarqawi's actual goal was likely to destabilize the monarchy in his native Jordan, and in fact, the bombing was not the first attack Zarqawi launched inside the kingdom in 2005. In August, AQI had carried out an unsuccessful rocket attack against two U.S. Navy amphibious warfare ships— the USS Kearsarge and the USS Ashland, in the port of Aqaba. Instead of destabilizing the regime, the Aqaba and Amman attacks produced a backlash against AQI, with thousands of Jordanians taking to the streets to support King Abdullah and denounce Zarqawi. Representatives of Zarqawi's Kalela tribe, including his own brother and cousin, publicly disowned him by taking out half-page advertisements in all three of Jordan's major newspapers, declaring, quote, we sever links with him until doomsday. End quote. Days after the attack, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas visited the bombing site and declared that the perpetrators, quote, do not belong to any human race, Arab or Islam. May God curse them from this day until judgment day. End quote. Subsequent reactions in the Arab media in Syria, London, Lebanon, and Kuwait as well as Sunni communities in Jordan, Iraq, and throughout the Middle East, would long haunt Zarqawi and his organization. The Atiyah Letter In the aftermath of the Amman attack and its repercussions throughout the Arab world, al-Qaeda's senior leaders again tried to rein in their wayward Iraqi franchise. Atiyah Abid ar-Rahman, a top lieutenant of Osama bin Laden, wrote Zarqawi a highly critical letter, urging him to cease his more violent attacks and follow orders from al-Qaeda's leadership on strategy. In the letter, likely sent in December 2005 just after the Amman attacks, Atiyah compared Zarqawi's extreme tactics in Iraq to the massacres conducted by the armed Islamic group in Algeria that had destroyed popular support, implying that al-Qaeda in Iraq was on course to bring about its own downfall as well. Atiyah warned, quote, 
We are against all acts that alienate, from killing to any sort of other treatment. Even insofar as the corrupt ones and traitors from among the Sunnis, we shouldn't kill them unless the people would understand and think that it was a good thing due to the obviousness of their corruption, their treason, and their evil. If we come and kill some people whom we know to be corrupt and treasonous, but who are respected and beloved by the people, then this leads to great trouble, and it is an act against all of the fundamentals of politics and leadership. End quote. Atiyah singled out Zarqawi's attacks against religious scholars and tribal leaders, warning him that such attacks were corrosive to their efforts and that Zarqawi's movement was too weak to fight fellow Sunnis, the Shia, and coalition forces at the same time. Channeling Mao Zedong, Atiyah warned Zarqawi that the popular support that their movement enjoyed would be fleeting if Zarqawi did not change his tactics. Quote, The Muslim nation is with us loving us, harboring us, supporting us, sympathizing with us, and concurring with us. Also among these are our metal and the metal of our soldiers, which are the waters that our fish inhabit. If we waste this great foundation, then we would be remiss, profligate, and liable to fail. End quote. Atiyah also criticized Zarqawi's unilateral decisions to expand the war, urging him to, quote, abstain from making any decision on a comprehensive issue, one with broad reach, and on substantial matters until you have turned to your leadership, Sheikh Usama and the Dr. Zawahiri and their brothers. Atiyah stressed that, quote, announcing a war against the Shiite turncoats and killing them, expanding the arena of war to the neighboring countries, and undertaking large-scale operations whose impact is great, end quote, should not have been conducted without the approval of al-Qaeda's senior leadership. Atiyah was not the only Salafist who was alarmed by Zarqawi's excesses. Zarqawi's own Jordanian mentor, Sheikh Abu Muhammad al-Makdisi, publicly broke with his former protege in July, denouncing Zarqawi's killing of innocent Iraqis. Other prominent Sunni clerics followed suit, and Egypt's Sheikh Mohammed Sayyid Tantawi and Saudi Arabia's Mohsen al-Awaji joined the chorus of voices denouncing Zarqawi's tactics. National Guard Challenges, page 505. As the threats from Zarqawi, the Shia militants, and the Iranian regime began to mount in the crucial election season of 2005, inside MNFI a few signs of trouble emerged among some of the National Guard units that had arrived as part of the third major rotation of forces. The 2004 decision to operationalize the National Guard had resulted in an abnormally high number of National Guard units in Iraq during most of 2005. Most of these units performed well at the company level and below, such as the troops of the Kentucky-based 617th Military Police Company. When ambushed near Salman Pak on March 20, 2005, the 617th Military Police Company responded so ferociously that it routed its attackers, killing 27 insurgents and wounding or capturing seven others in intense fighting that required the guardsmen to clear two enemy trenches in close combat. One soldier, Staff Sergeant Timothy Nine, was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, and two others were awarded the Silver Star. One of the Silver Stars was awarded to Sergeant Lee Ann Hester, who became the first woman to earn the award since World War II and the first woman to earn the medal for close combat. 
Some other National Guard units at higher echelons, however, did not perform as well under the intensifying pressure of the summer and fall of 2005. While many of the Guard units around Baghdad performed admirably, as well or better than their active counterparts, several Guard units had problems operating in the difficult Iraq environment. The first signs of trouble appeared in the 1st Battalion, 184th Infantry Regiment from the California National Guard, which had been assigned to the 4th BCT 3rd Infantry Division in Baghdad. The battalion had been given responsibility for the Karada District, just south of the Green Zone, in February 2005. By summer, accusations surfaced that the battalion's leaders had condoned illegal activities with prisoners, and U.S. officers found a video of unit non-commissioned officers abusing seven prisoners by kicking them in their genitals and shocking them with a taser. The initial investigation into detainee abuse uncovered systemic problems with the battalion, leading to at least ten other investigations that revealed a negative command climate. The battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Frey, was an eccentric officer who had first fought in Vietnam before fighting as a mercenary in Rhodesia. In Iraq, he carried a tomahawk that he cleared at clearing barrels and used to knight soldiers during promotion ceremonies. Frey tolerated similar eccentric behavior in his subordinates, such as allowing soldiers to carry samurai swords on patrol. As the investigations expanded, investigators discovered that Frey had almost been relieved of command during the battalion's pre-deployment training, and one of the generals responsible for training the unit had predicted Frey would, quote, get soldiers killed, end quote. Frey had also been accused of mistreating his own troops during mobilization training, placing some of them in a survival school-style isolation to toughen them, and causing a near-mutiny that came to the attention of the Los Angeles Times. The pattern of abuses and poor leadership had continued in Iraq. Battalion leaders had interpreted the rules of engagement aggressively, leading one investigator to describe Frey and his men as, quote, trying to fight World War III. It was them against the world, end quote. The investigations also revealed that the unit was falsifying patrol reports, as in one case in which a lieutenant sat in his HMMWV inside a forward operating base and called in reports over the radio so his platoon could sleep. In another case, a company first sergeant was found to be extorting money from his soldiers. The investigations found enough wrong within the battalion that Webster, the 3rd Infantry Division commander, chose to relieve Frey and several company commanders, replacing them with new commanders drawn from the 3rd Infantry Division's staff. Webster was forced to use his own personnel because the U.S. Army's Personnel Command and National Guard Bureau were unable to provide replacement commanders from the United States on short notice. In a tragic turn of events, Frey's replacement and a replacement company commander died in a double IED attack less than two months later. Meanwhile, MNCI leaders began to suspect by fall 2005 that just south of Baghdad, Georgia Guardsmen were having problems as well. On June 22nd, the 48th BCT had taken control of the infamous Triangle of Death, an area south of Baghdad around the towns of Yusufia, Mahmudia, and Lutufia. The 48th BCT was filling the gap created by the reassignment of the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment from the area to Nineveh. The 48th BCT had been dealt a difficult hand, taking over violent districts that no coalition unit had held for longer than three months, and some unit leaders believed there were areas that had never seen coalition forces. The 3rd Infantry Division, which managed the Inspector General and legal complaints for the brigade, 
began to notice patterns similar to those of the 1st Battalion, 184th Infantry Regiment. Soon after arriving in Iraq, the 48th BCT was racked by so many disciplinary issues that division leaders judged the brigade's problems were diverting its attention from fighting the war. One investigation led senior 3rd Infantry Division leaders to conclude that the brigade command sergeant major was sexually harassing the women in his unit. Multinational Division Baghdad, or MNDB, and MNCI leaders also assessed the brigade was struggling tactically, and that confronting the well-developed insurgent sanctuary south of Baghdad exceeded the brigade's capabilities. By the end of October, the 3rd Infantry Division and MNCI leadership lost confidence in the 48th BCT's leaders and relieved the unit of its duties in its battle space, redirecting it to the mission of escorting logistics convoys as the theater security force. In its place, the 2nd Brigade 101st Airborne Division took control of the Triangle of Death. As the 2nd BCT assumed the battle space in October, the number of U.S. casualties in combat engagements spiked. On the 2nd BCT's first day, an IED killed five of its soldiers, following a considerable period in which the 48th BCT had reported no attacks of any significance. Over its first 47 days in the Triangle of Death, the 2nd BCT's units found themselves engaged in battles merely to leave their forward operating bases, and 22 of the brigade's soldiers were killed or evacuated. During one of the brigade's first offensive operations, it found 14 IEDs daisy-chained together over a roughly 100-meter area, and another 23 IEDs in a 500-meter area. The brigade's area of operations apparently was patrolled so lightly that insurgents had had time to build some of the IEDs with 500 to 700 pounds of explosives and cover the bombs with concrete to conceal them from metal detectors. Other missions in the brigade's sector uncovered several car bomb factories, likely for use in AQI's car bomb attacks in Baghdad. While many National Guard units were facing the difficulties of the worsening security situation in Iraq, back in the United States, a crisis arose in which the National Guard units were sorely missed. On August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina made landfall, creating a swath of destruction in the Gulf states. With so many National Guard units deployed to Iraq, some of the Gulf states lacked the troops they would normally call up to perform disaster response missions. Mississippi and Louisiana, the two hardest-hit states, each had a brigade combat team in Iraq when Katrina struck, meaning that 35% of the Louisiana National Guard and 40% of the Mississippi Guard could only watch the disaster unfold on television from 7,000 miles away. The residual Guard forces in the United States faced an equipment shortage as well because a substantial amount of their equipment had been harvested by Coalition Joint Task Force 7, or CJTF-7, and MNFI over the two years of conflict. Harvested equipment remained in Iraq to equip the next unit in the rotational cycle and save the Army the cost of shipping equipment each time units changed. Lieutenant General Stephen Bloom, the chief of the National Guard Bureau, argued that the shortages, quote, left troops at home without modern communications and night vision equipment, as well as the vehicles necessary for guard troops to traverse neighborhoods flooded in the wake of Katrina. End quote. The situation resulted in a strange role reversal as more than 20,000 stateside active duty soldiers rushed to the Gulf states to perform disaster response missions in place of the absent National Guard troops. 
Of the 65,000-man relief effort for Katrina, nearly one-third were active forces, including a Marine Expeditionary Unit and the Division-Ready Brigade of the 82nd Airborne Division. The reversal of roles seemed to validate some state governors' criticism of what they considered the overuse of the National Guard outside of the United States. Quote, Is it really the best use to take a first responder from home and put him in to guard an airport in Saudi Arabia? End quote. Virginia Governor Mark Warner had asked at a gathering of governors in July. National Guard brigades that mobilized were unavailable for emergencies for at least 18 months, given the six-month preparatory training for units headed into combat. The concern was particularly acute in states with smaller National Guard forces, such as Montana, where Governor Brian Schweitzer had requested earlier in 2005 that the Department of Defense, or DOD, immediately redeploy all 1,500 guardsmen from Iraq, almost half the state's total force, so they could respond to state emergencies. Because of the challenges of 2005, guard units would not be brought back to Iraq in force until 2009. Elections and Off-Ramps, page 508 The December Parliamentary Elections In an electoral whirlwind, Iraqis went to the polls again on December 15th to elect their first government under the newly ratified constitution. As with the October referendum, Sunni insurgents had little effect on the actual voting, carrying out just 80 attacks and causing 14 casualties nationwide. The surprisingly peaceful election day capped a two-month drop in violence. From the October 15th referendum to the parliamentary elections, MNFI assessed that attacks had dropped by 26% and casualties by 29%. One likely reason for the drop in election day violence was MNFI's outreach to Sunni leaders ahead of the vote. Casey's interactions with Sunni notables since the summer of 2005 had led him to the realization that Sunni political and tribal leaders not only interacted with the insurgency, but also exerted influence over it, a fact that Casey believed presented an opportunity to drive a wedge between insurgent factions. Accordingly, in November he had authorized Minister of Defense Sadun Delaimi to engage 18 key Sunni leaders as a way to expedite the Sunni-in component of Casey's bridging strategy. By December, the talks seemed to show progress, and the Sunni leaders had asked that MNFI pause offensive operations as a confidence-building measure. Unwilling to cease offensive operations fully as AQI and other groups tried to disrupt the elections, Casey had instead agreed on December 11th to pause offensive operations at the battalion level and above until after the election, and to consider releasing specific detainees. The drop in election violence was also driven by Sunni opposition to al-Qaeda in Iraq. By November, the Anbar General Conference, the Sunni political organization formed in September, had expanded and renamed itself the Anbar People's Conference. The group, now claiming nearly 100 politicians, tribal sheikhs, technocrats, and insurgent leaders, began organizing municipal security committees to protect and facilitate the December parliamentary elections. In Ramadi, for example, Muhammad Mahmoud Latif's followers in the 1920 Revolutionary Brigades forcibly drove AQI from several neighborhoods to protect the electoral process. And in one district, Latif's ally, Sheikh Nasser Abid al-Karim Mukhlif al-Fadawi, raised a tribal militia to guard polling sites against AQI attacks. To a degree, 
Emboldened by AQI's failure to disrupt the constitutional referendum, Sunni Arabs had doubled down on their efforts to jumpstart the political process, hoping that they could eventually return to their dominant position in Iraqi politics and reestablish control of the Iraqi state. These efforts culminated in the merging of Sunni political parties into the Iraqi Tawafuq Front, as Sunni leaders believed they could garner more seats in the National Assembly by pooling their resources and running together. The Tawafuq Front ran on a platform that called for insurgent disarmament and coalition withdrawal, and many of the group's expatriate leaders were having covert discussions with coalition representatives to begin the process. All of these moves were hailed by Casey and MNFI as evidence that important elements of the Sunni Arab resistance were interested in reconciling and joining the political process. Voter turnout for the election seemed to be promising as well. Over the year, voter participation increased significantly, from 58% in January to 66% in October and 75% in December. More importantly, the long-sought Sunni participation seemed to have materialized on December 15th. In Anbar, overall voter turnout increased from 2% in January to 38% in October to a whopping 86% in December. In Nineveh, participation jumped from 16% to 53% to 70% across the three elections, and Salah Hadin's reported turnout grew from 29% to 90% to 98%. Because of a 75% overall voter turnout and significant Sunni participation, the makeup of Iraq's governing body shifted. Across the country, Iraqi voters overwhelmingly cast their votes along sectarian lines, leading one Iraqi commentator to pronounce that Iraq had held, quote, not an election, but a census, end quote. The Shia United Iraqi Alliance, or UIA, dropped from 140 to 128 seats. The Kurdistan Alliance decreased from 75 to 53 seats, and Ayad Alawi's secular Iraqi National Accord decreased from 40 to 25 seats. The Tawafiq Front and another new Sunni party, the Iraqi National Dialogue Front, obtained 44 and 11 seats, respectively. The expanded Sunni parliamentary bloc was led by Tariq Hashimi, the former Muslim Brotherhood leader Adnan Dulaimi, the former Baathist Saleh Mutlaq, and Jaish al-Islami insurgent leader Khalaf Ulayan. With a total of 275 seats in the Council of Representatives, Iraq's new parliament, no bloc achieved an outright majority, meaning that Iraq's next government would be a coalition of parties from different sects and ethnicities. However, the election was not completely unmarred by sectarian violence, as SCIRI's militant wing, the Badr Corps, had carried out an intimidation campaign during the parliamentary electoral cycle. In Basra, Maisan, and Mutana provinces, Badr members, some in police uniform, tore down rival parties' campaign posters, burned down Alawi's campaign office in Samawa, and threatened supporters of other political parties. In Basra and Amara, Badr members tampered with the vote by removing ballots for Alawi's list and filling in blank ballots for the Shia UIA. The off-ramp continues. The surprisingly high turnout figures, particularly in the Sunni areas that had boycotted the January voting and had been strongholds of the insurgency, indicated to Casey and MNFI that their plan to bring the Sunnis into the political process had worked. 
In the days after the election, Casey concluded that the time was right to signal to Iraqis that the reward for turning from violence to politics was the beginning of an end to the U.S. military occupation. Security and political conditions in the country, Casey believed, warranted going ahead with the off-ramp of two BCTs that MNFI had been exploring since before the October referendum. Violence had continued to decrease over time, MNFI analysts noted. Car bomb attacks had decreased by 62% between the January and December elections, while the casualties caused by these attacks had fallen by 97%. Numerically, suicide car bombs had decreased from more than 60 in June to 26 in November and just 12 by mid-December. The drop in attacks seemed to indicate that the coalition's operations in the western Euphrates and Tel Afar had succeeded in shutting down the foreign fighter pipelines and stemming al-Qaeda in Iraq's devastating wave of car bomb attacks. The increased voter participation also reflected Sunni's rejection of AQI's calls to boycott the elections, Casey and MNFI judged. Quote, Improved Sunni Arab participation in the political process helped drive a wedge between Sunni rejectionists and terrorists and foreign fighters, end quote. MNFI analysts concluded in a report, 2005, the insurgency year in review, issued on Election Day. With security rapidly improving and former insurgents apparently choosing the ballot box over violence, the coalition was in a, quote, better position versus AQI than at any time in the previous 18 months, end quote, Casey reported to Bush the following day, adding that, quote, recent coalition and ISF operations have restored Iraqi control to the Syrian border, disrupted AQI facilitation networks, and set conditions for future success, end quote. The state of the Iraqi security forces was improving enough, Casey believed, that the time had come to use the drawdown of coalition troops as a forcing function to make the ISF perform more security tasks. In terms of raw numbers, the ISF had grown considerably in 2005, reaching 214,000 members by December and marking a turning point at which ISF strength exceeded that of coalition troops for the first time in the war. More importantly, ISF units seemed to be reaching a level at which they could operate independently. The metric used to reflect Iraqi unit capabilities, the Transition Readiness Assessment, or TRA, for December 2005, showed one Iraqi army battalion already operating fully independently, TRA Level 1, another 44 in the lead with coalition forces acting in a supporting role, TRA Level 2, and another 55 operating side-by-side with coalition forces, TRA Level 3. Another eight battalions of Iraqi special police were also in the lead, according to their TRA ratings. By MNFI's calculations, 10 Iraqi battalions at TRA-1 or TRA-2 could be considered the equivalent of one U.S. brigade, meaning that the ISF of December 2005 was more than capable, in MNFI's view, of making up for the two U.S. brigade combat teams that Casey was considering off-ramping. Off-ramping two BCTs would incur some tactical risk, Casey acknowledged. There could be a, quote, reduction in tactical and operational effectiveness and flexibility, end quote, as well as a, quote, misperception of the U.S. running away, end quote. The, quote, creation of expectation for continuous drawdown, end quote, and the danger that the insurgency could increase in size and effectiveness. 
Violence was likely to surge in the period immediately following the elections, Casey expected, but he believed it would be the last breath of a dying insurgency extinguished by the democratic process and a new government with popular legitimacy. Deciding not to off-ramp the BCTs in the wake of a successful election, meanwhile, could incur strategic risk. In addition to the political implications of such a decision, refusing to off-ramp U.S. troops now that the Iraqi battalions were approaching full readiness could, quote, increase the potential for Iraqi dependency on coalition forces, end quote, Casey warned Rumsfeld on December 19th. For all of these reasons, the coalition, quote, had to draw down to win, end quote, the MNFI commander argued. Taking Casey's recommendation, Bush announced on December 23rd, eight days after the elections, that the United States would off-ramp the two BCTs Casey had designated. The president's decision would mean the reduction of U.S. BCTs in Iraq from 17 to 15 by January 2006 as units in Iraq redeployed. To hedge his bet, Casey had agreed with CENTCOM that one of the off-ramped brigade combat teams, the 2nd Brigade 1st Armored Division, would deploy to Kuwait and serve as a, quote, call-forward force, end quote, essentially an operational reserve for MNFI. However, inside Iraq, the off-ramp would mean a reduction of 6,700 U.S. combat troops, along with about 3,000 additional troops in U.S. support units that also would not be needed. Because almost all of the BCTs deploying to Iraq in 2006 would be transformed modular units with fewer troops than the legacy brigades they were replacing, MNFI expected an additional net reduction of 2,700 troops from, quote, modularity savings, end quote. The overall reduction of the coalition footprint would come in other areas as well. From late 2005 to fall 2006, MNFI planned to replace 5,922 support soldiers with contractors gradually, at a cost of $866 million, while the MNFI headquarters itself would shrink from 999 personnel to 864. The Consequences of Flawed Data Casey's recommendation and Bush's decision rested on data that both men believed indicated an improving situation in Iraq. Attacks had dropped significantly with each electoral cycle. Electoral participation had increased, and polls indicated that those who were participating in the political process were ready for the coalition to withdraw as soon as possible. The Iraqi security forces, at least based on the transition readiness assessment, seemed to be reaching the point at which they could replace coalition units. However, each of these metrics was fraught with problems. Modern polling methods were incapable of accurately gauging Iraqi public opinion in 2005. The challenging security environment prevented balanced access to all of Iraq's communities, and pollsters almost never broke down their respondents along sectarian lines. Polling results like those of the October and December elections masked Sunnis' growing anger with a political system they perceived as intended to subjugate them permanently. After 35 years of Ba'athist rule, Iraqis' long-standing fear of responding truthfully to queries also skewed polling results. While most Iraqis told pollsters they wanted coalition forces to withdraw, many Sunnis also noted that nothing created greater fear than Iraqi security forces arriving in their neighborhoods without American troops in tow. MNFI's Significant Activities, or SIGACT, data, used to calculate attack trends over time, 
also tended to cloud the coalition's understanding of the situation. MNFI considered attacks against coalition forces to be significant activities and used them as the principal indicator of the insurgency's strength and of the security situation. Attacks against Iraqi security forces were sometimes included in MNFI's significant activities data as well. Rarely, however, were attacks against Iraqi civilians included, and when they were, they were usually not broken down along sectarian lines. They were also not usually categorized by scale, so that an attack that killed over 100 civilians might be treated the same as an attack that killed one coalition soldier. Thus, the U.S. military's post-Vietnam War aversion to maintaining body counts reached its logical conclusion and produced unintended consequences in the Iraq War. The oft-cited statistics showing increased participation in the democratic process also were deceptive. While Sunnis voted in greater numbers with each successive election, they were participating to register their dissatisfaction with the new political system, rather than their support of it. Similarly, the transition readiness assessment, which produced results showing that Iraqi units were ready to assume security responsibility from coalition forces, belied the Iraqis' real capabilities. While Iraqi units might be fully equipped and manned, they were far from ready to face insurgents and sectarian forces on their own. Many units had become ethnically pure and unwilling to respond to orders that would threaten their own faction, while others who might have been willing to fight lacked the proper training and logistics functions to make them effective. These problems with the metrics that guided MNFI's decision-making were little recognized in 2005, but they had far-reaching consequences. Geographic Impacts of the Off-Ramp in geographical terms, MNFI planners intended to absorb the troop deficit created by the off-ramp in Baghdad and Diyala, two of the most violent areas in Iraq. For Baghdad, the loss of one off-ramped brigade in 2006 would mean a precipitous drop in troops that was the continuation of a multi-year trend. The number of U.S. troops in Baghdad had dropped from 35,000 in 2004 to 30,000 in 2005 and to 24,000 in 2006. These changes were ostensibly balanced by a parallel growth of the Iraqi security forces, which, in Baghdad, went from 22,000 to 36,000 to 56,000 over the same time period. As MNDB was losing significant combat power, its area of operations was expanding tenfold, partially as a result of the departure of the 1,600-strong Ukrainian contingent from MNDCS in December 2005, but also because MNCI had decided to shift Najaf from Multinational Force West, or MNFW's area of operations, to MNDB, to allow the MEF to focus solely on the challenging situation in Anbar. By early January 2006, the greatly expanded MNDB area included all of Babil, Karbala, and Najaf provinces, creating a gerrymandered sector that stretched from Baghdad all the way to the Saudi border. With the Ukrainian departure, meanwhile, the adjacent shrunken MNDCS was effectively one BCT strong. U.S. troops in the north were about to be similarly stretched. In MNDNC, the off-ramp would decrease the number of U.S. BCTs from 4 to 3, a sharp difference from late 2003, when two full U.S. divisions had held the rest of northern Iraq. With the off-ramp, Multinational Division North Central, or MNDNC, contained 12 battalions spread over only 18 forward operating bases in 2006, 
down from 17 battalions and 28 forward operating bases in 2005. Like MND-B, MND-NC expanded its area while losing troop strength. In January 2006, Major General Thomas Turner and his 101st Airborne Division, having taken over MND-NC in November, assumed responsibility for MNFW from departing Major General David M. Rodriguez and the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, forming a new division area called MND-N. The 101st took charge of the 172nd BCT in Mosul as well as the Kurdish provinces of Dahuk and Erbil, where the South Korean MND-NE had begun to reduce its presence. While the two Kurdish provinces were generally quiet, they still required a troop commitment to help develop the ISF, governance, and the rule of law. These changes greatly taxed the capacity of the 101st Airborne Division's headquarters, which had shrunk significantly as a byproduct of transformation. In both MND-N and MND-B, the drawdown of bases and personnel paralleled accelerated efforts to reduce the coalition presence in Iraq's cities. In the days immediately following the December 2005 election, Casey issued new planning guidance for MNFI basing that represented the fruition of his and Abizade's concern with coalition troops creating antibodies among the population. Quote, as part of the strategy of reducing our visibility and profile, we will reduce our presence and operating profile in cities where practical and operational requirements permit, end quote, Casey's order noted, quote, where we need to retain the ability to monitor or influence events within cities, coalition forces should relocate to bases, initially on the outskirts of the urban areas where necessary, and later to more distant locations, end quote. As part of this effort to downsize the coalition footprint from 81 bases to four, the order directed the multinational divisions to plan to move out of Baghdad, Basra, Mosul, Ramadi, Fallujah, North Babil, Najaf, Kirkuk, Samara, and Bakuba by the end of 2006. Political Warning Signs In the aftermath of the December 15th election, Iraqis did not share the optimistic outlook that had led Casey and MNFI to launch the plans for the reduction of coalition troops. The election results were far from conclusive. While the UIA had secured a plurality of votes, it needed to forge a complex coalition in order to govern. Far from being a unified bloc itself, the UIA had become a fractious Islamist Shia alliance composed of SCIRI, the Dawa Party, the Sadrists, the Fadila Party, and some Shia independents. Muqtada Sadr, who, like the Sunni Arabs, had realized that opposition to elections was counterproductive, had sponsored a Sadrist party that secured 32 seats, giving Sadr significant leverage in the forming of a governing coalition. The election had essentially legitimized Sadr and his movement and given them an advantage in their long-standing battle with coalition forces. Any coalition military action against Sadr's followers was more difficult now that they were certain to be part of the government. Quote, Moving against Sadr would be perceived as attacking the legitimacy of the government, end quote. MNCI Commander Vines noted later, quote, It would be the equivalent of the police coming down and arresting the Republican National Committee. End quote. The coalition's most potent enemy from the summer of 2004 would now be an integral part of the Iraqi state.
The October and December elections of 2005 left coalition leaders with the mistaken sense that a strategic victory was within their grasp. The coalition had fulfilled the United Nations, or UN, mandate in UN Security Council Resolution, or UNSCR 1546, and was about to shepherd into existence Iraq's first democratically elected government, a step that U.S. doctrine, going back as far as the Marine Small Wars Manual, considered a sign of progress in counterinsurgency campaigns. From the perspectives of Casey and Abizaid, the election results were evidence that Iraqis, especially Sunnis, were choosing the democratic political process over the insurgency, and that a fissure was opening between the Iraqi Sunni population and al-Qaeda in Iraq. The Iraqi security forces' success in securing the election, meanwhile, seemed to indicate that Iraqi forces were ready to begin taking lead responsibility for the country's security. For Casey, the time seemed right to begin the American troop drawdown and to accelerate the transition of responsibility and bases to the Iraqis, which he had believed since August 2004 was the eventual path to success in Iraq. Yet, Many of these were deceptive or simply poor indicators. MNFI's assessment of a decrease in violence came from statistics that principally tracked violence against coalition forces, which was no longer the focus of al-Qaeda in Iraq and other groups that were more intent on killing fellow Iraqis. The transition readiness assessment inflated MNFI's perceptions of ISF capabilities. The increase in voter participation across 2005's elections concealed a darker sectarian competition that was playing out. The flawed statistics also concealed a deeper problem, that the assumptions underlying MNFI's campaign plan were themselves fundamentally flawed. Virtually all of the U.S. government had assumed that elections would solve Iraq's ills so long as insurgents could not prevent the holding of the vote. MNFI successfully blocked militant attempts to disrupt the elections, but Iraq continued its slow march towards civil war nonetheless, showing in hindsight that MNFI and U.S. national leaders had applied the wrong prescription to Iraq. Assuming that Iraq's main problem was an insurgency against the coalition, U.S. leaders expected elections to remove most of the underlying reasons for insurgents to continue their struggle. Yet, the Iraq conflict had already evolved into an intercommunal political struggle that teetered on the edge of civil war. In such a scenario, elections were inherently destabilizing events that served as accelerants to civil war. By incorrectly diagnosing the problem, the United States had ensured it would not be able to accomplish a key component of its end state, a representative government that respected the human rights of all Iraqis. In the world outside the coalition headquarters, uninfluenced by the flawed metrics being meticulously tracked in PowerPoint presentations, Iraqis viewed the late 2005 election season not as a stabilizing period, but rather as a potential preamble to sectarian civil war. In polls conducted between October and December by the State Department's Office of Research, a majority of Iraqis in the key cities of Mosul, Tikrit, Kirkuk, and Baghdad were concerned or very concerned that civil war was imminent in Iraq. In Mosul, 76% of respondents worried that civil war was looming, and in Baghdad, the number worried about civil war had doubled since the same question was asked in March, jumping to 53%. As Iraqis began 2006, they tended to fear that sectarian violence in the country was primed to explode, and their fears were justified. End of chapter 18, part 2
defeated by democracy. Winter 2005-2006. Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.